Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 55, The Battle of Byzantine Ridge. So as we discussed over the past several episodes, the Battle of the Somme had played out to varying degrees of success. South of the Albert Bapaume Road, Rawlinson's 4th Army continued to drag itself through a series of brutal, slow-moving attritional battles, while Fayol and the French 6th Army found greater success south of the river. When the 38th Welsh captured Mametswood on July the 12th and marked the end of a horrible two weeks for the BEF, the battles for Oviers, Cantomaison, and Mametswood had cost them another 25,000 casualties, bringing the British total to 81,000 for a campaign that was only 11 days old. In the wake of such terrible losses, Anglo-French relations had become frayed. The French accused the British of dragging their heels, while Haig's decision to abandon operations north of the main road but a fierce rebuke from Joffre. The two allies were at cross-purposes, but the good news was that after the two weeks were up, the BEF was ready to retake the offensive. Rawlinson began laying the groundwork for what would become the Battle of Byzantine Ridge. This episode is a mishmash of various things I've pulled together. As you've probably assumed from the title, our primary focus will be the Battle of Byzantine Ridge, which took place on July the 14th, France's national holiday. But I also plan on stepping back from the front and situating where we are on the Somme in the context of the wider war. So in addition to a front-line history, we'll also be addressing some of the neglected areas as well mainly the reaction of the British public to the news of July the 1st, and how the hydra of Verdun and the Somme affected policy in Britain, France, and Germany. When I first began writing this episode, I set out to cover a battle which is largely overlooked. But the deeper I dug, I found that my perception of the battle had changed. Turns out that Byzantine Ridge is actually one of the most critical battles of the campaign, and if we're looking at how the BEF evolved from a bunch of untested civilians, into a fully-fledged modern army, Byzantine Ridge marks an important step in that process. So today, I'll be making the case that Byzantine Ridge deserves a lot more credit than it is given, and should be seen as a stepping stone in the evolution of the BEF. But since it's been a while since the last episode, we should start with a bit of context. The two weeks following the start of the Somme Offensive saw Anglo-French relations hit a sour patch, Joseph Joffre had grown impatient as the British wrestled over Contomaison and Mamet's Wood, and expressed doubt over London's commitment to the campaign. When Joffre met with Haig at Haig's headquarters on July the 3rd, these tensions came to the forefront. At the conference, Haig informed the assembled that he was suspending operations north of the Albert Bapaume Road, setting Joffre into an absolute rage. Ferdinand Foch, who was present at this meeting, recalls Joffre thumping the table with his fist and shouting, You will attack. Undeterred, Haig famously retorted that Joffre was not speaking as one gentleman to another and asserted his allied commander's rights, saying he had approved the plan but was now modifying it to suit the changing situation. Cooler heads prevailed, and the two commanders shook hands and departed with mutual assurances of goodwill, although these were said through gritted teeth. Although no glasses went flying, the meeting had definite consequences for Anglo-French relations. A few days later, Haig was in Paris, where he met with the French president, Raymond Poincaré. 
Haig assured Poincaré that he was planning something special for the upcoming Bastille Day celebrations, massaging the president's concerns about Anglo-French harmony. But on the military side, Haig and Joffre were not on speaking terms, and it fell to 65-year-old Ferdinand Foch to be the conduit. Foch was entrusted an ambiguous responsibility. On the one hand, a senior French officer was necessary if France wished to remain in the driver's seat. But on the other hand, French enthusiasm was beginning to waver. Joffre was not speaking to Haig, and Foch had opposed the operation all along. There was also a practical issue of command that needed to be addressed. Although Haig never doubted France's role in the alliance, he found Foch's presence difficult to swallow. In 1916, Haig's issue with Foch was entirely hierarchical. Foch's rank of army group commander had no equivalent in the British army. Haig and Joff were on equal footing, while Rawlinson and Fayol communicated with each other at the same level of command. Foch, however, was stuck in the middle caught between salvaging a campaign he never wanted, while working with an ally to whom he had no authority. Thus, Foch had to rely on persuading rather than ordering. In the meantime, Fayol's army had continued to roll. On July the 4th, the foreign legionnaires from the Moroccan division captured Herbacor and Azevies. Then, on July the 9th, a 30-hour bombardment gave the French another scalp, the town of Bayege, putting the French on the outskirts of Pyrenees. In total, the French had advanced just shy of 10 kilometers in 8 days. The British, by comparison, would take 2 weeks to move just one. This discrepancy in returns brought further snickering on the French side. Upon learning that British shell production still lagged behind France, Joffre had remarked, quote, One is surprised that an industrial nation like England has been unable to do much more. The English preoccupation at the start of the war with commerce and seizing German markets undoubtedly lies behind this state of affairs. Quote. But Foch was willing to stitch together something tangible. He understood that Anglo-French relations had to be harmonious if the campaign stood any hope of being successful. Foch was particularly alarmed by rumors suggesting some generals were in favor of cutting the British loose, this being in reaction to Haig's decision to abandon operations north of the main road. The trouble was, the French sector on the Somme posed little strategic value. The terrain had nothing to offer in terms of positioning, and the numerous rivers and marshlands made the task of supplying an advancing army all the more difficult. Foch understood that the campaign's merits would be judged solely on British exploits. It was Haig's army which faced the Herculean task, and so the focus became ensuring the British were kept on target. Writing to his wife sometime in late July, Foch referred to himself as the glue of the alliance. He had found a way to keep Anglo-French relations from falling apart, and through a mutual acquaintance, was able to befriend 4th Army Commander Henry Rawlinson. Foch seems to have had a positive influence on Rawlinson's thinking, and the two men lunched together several times throughout the campaign. Rawlinson described the French general as amendable and amusing, and Foch was impressed with Rawlinson's potential, writing to his wife that he saw something worth cultivating in the young officer, Rawlinson being 52 and Foch 65. Although never discussing operational strategy in any great detail, Foch's wealth of experience and amicable personality was felt by Rawlinson, insomuch that for the coming Battle of Byzantine Ridge, 
Rawlinson inadvertently borrowed from Foch's playbook. Typically, the study of warfare can be approached in one of two ways. The first is what historians often refer to as the spectator method, in which the reader, student, or listener follows the course of events step by step, marshalling the facts from both sides, and then being offered a final assessment based on the evidence. This method provides the reader with the most information, who will then walk away with a complete knowledge of events, often knowing more than those who actually participated. The spectator method is great at giving wide summaries, and showing how battles are won or lost. But unfortunately, this method also predisposes something which our old friend Clausewitz warned us about, the fog of war. Clausewitz championed a new way of approaching military history, something which Foch later picked up and named the scientific method. In his 1903 book, De la Conduite de la Guerre, or The Conduct of War, Foch echoed Clausewitz's theme that to study warfare is to study human nature. Clausewitz, as we know, was one of the first theorists to elevate the study of warfare to a new intellectual level, like that of art, music, or engineering. For Clausewitz, the battlefield was no different than a canvas. Every piece of art is influenced by social and political factors, and it is difficult to grasp artistic expression without knowing anything of the climate in which the art was produced. Clausewitz applied this same rule to warfare. Military engagements, Clausewitz wrote, are organic processes, and when studying them, one must consider a plethora of factors such as the size of opposing forces, the armaments, positioning, terrain, weather, formations, intelligence, reserves, the commanders, and of course, the soldiers themselves. This saying nothing of the nations which produced said armies, what economic, religious, political, linguistic, and social changes were happening at home, and how did this come to influence their performance on the field? It is a lot to take in, but of course, that was what Clausewitz was driving at. He was more interested in writing a guide for future commanders, providing lessons on how to react when plans went weary. Foch took this mantle and ran with it. His scientific method was a more realistic approach to the discipline. Instead of the step-by-step -step spectator approach, Foch believed in studying battle from the standpoint of one side of the conflict usually from that of the commander, to try and show what information he possessed as to enemy positions, movements, and plans, how he obtained information, and how he gave orders, and how orders were carried out. Although this limits the point of view to a single side, it also conveys the most practical lessons. In The Conduct of War, Foch used the example of Moltke the Elder, who led the crushing invasion of France in 1870. Far from conventional wisdom, Foch showed how even the most disciplined force can run into problems. Moltke was forced to improvise several times in the campaign. The occupation of territory, lack of roads, civilian resistance, disease, and supply lines are all challenges commanders face within their own army, in this saying nothing of the problems that arise once battle has been joined. The size of the enemy force, his chosen strategy, tactics, and access to shorter supply routes are working against you each step of the way. But for Clausewitz and Foch, it was not the end result was interested them, but the day-to-day -day issues, and how commanders responded to unforeseen events. So in planning the assault on Byzantine Ridge, Rawlinson faced a situation for which he had not planned. 
Although the objective of the Somme remained the same, the failure of July the 1st meant plans had to change, and how the British would react in their next set-piece battle was a talking point in London and Paris. Rawlinson was keen to avoid the mistakes of July the 1st, and his plan, once criticized by a French general as an attack organized for amateurs by amateurs, reflected a bold new direction for the BEF. Rawlinson's plan called for four divisions, the 21st, 7th, 3rd, and 9th, to attack the second German position along the Byzantine Ridge, a 6,000-meter front between Longueval and Poissier. Most peculiarly, at least for an army as untested as the BEF, the attack was slated to begin in the pre-dawn hours of July 14th, preceded by a short, five-minute bombardment. Here is Foch's scientific method on full display. As we saw in our July 1st retrospective, the key to the British failure on the first day of the Somme was ineffective artillery. Although 1,500 guns had pummeled the German lines for seven days, an over-reliance on shrapnel shells and poor gun concentration meant the bombardment was spread too thin. Rawlinson was careful not to repeat these errors. On paper, July the 1st and Byzantine Ridge were vastly different operations, and a brief side-by-side -side comparison will show this in greater detail. First, the size of the attacking force was much smaller. Whereas July the 1st saw five corps go into action, July 14th would see only two, 15th Corps under Henry Horn and 13th under Walter Congreve. Since fewer forces were being deployed, this meant a reduced attack front. The German positions along Byzantine Ridge were comprised of six kilometers of frontline trenches, supported by 12,000 meters of auxiliary and relief lines. This was just 5% of the ground attacked on July the 1st, which saw the British attack 25 kilometers of front and 300,000 meters of support trenches. This distinction cannot be overstated. Second, a reduced attack front opened the door for improved gun concentration. Rawlinson had 1,000 guns for 6,000 meters, whereas on July the 1st, this ratio was 1,500 guns for 25,000 meters. In other words, British artillery could lob 272 kilograms, or 600 pounds of shell, toward a single trench, which works out to three times the weight of July the 1st. As historian Peter Simpkins writes, Compared to July the 1st, the attack was in several aspects a more accurate reflection of the capabilities of the new army formation, given imaginative operational planning. But by far the most daring element of Rawlinson's plan involved the infantry. There were two things of major concern. The first, having the infantry attack under darkness, and second, having them assemble in the middle of no man's land instead of in the safety of their own trenches. Here was the source of some controversy. Haig was adamantly opposed to both ideas. He judged a night attack too risky, and he did not believe that 22,000 men could assemble 500 meters from the Germans without an alarm being raised. Instead, Haig favored splitting the advance, with the 7th and 21st divisions attacking just before sunset, followed by the 3rd and 9th divisions the following morning. But Rawlinson was persistent and in what turned out to be perhaps the most important distinction from July the 1st, Rawlinson was able to bring his boss around. 
With the help of his senior and most successful corps commanders, Horn and Congreve, they were able to convince Haig to ditch his proposed strategy, arguing that by dividing the advance, it would greatly reduce the width of the attack front, and therefore allow the concentration of German artillery fire. Contrary to popular belief, this episode shows that Haig could, and was, challenged by his subordinates. He did not have dictatorial powers as many of his critics would lead us to believe. Haig and Rawlinson had acted at cross-purposes before, but this time, Rawlinson was given a full endorsement. When we think of the many battles fought on the Somme, Bazintine Ridge is not a name which commonly springs to mind. Most histories focus on two dates, July the 1st and September 15th, the latter date marking the first appearance of the tank. So the Battle of Bazantine Ridge is pretty low on the popularity list, which is a real shame, because as I hinted at in the intro, there was major significance attached to it. As we've seen, July the 1st was an unrivaled disappointment, and the British were forced to turn to Plan B while they nursed their wounds. But with the battles of July 4th and 12th now in the rear mirror, the BEF was handed a rare opportunity to start anew, and to show the French and Germans that they were more than a nation of shopkeepers. But although this may have been of some comfort to the brass, the British home front was about to be hit with a dose of reality. Two days before the assault on Bazantine, the first batch of casualty lists had arrived in London, the bulk of which contained the names of those killed or wounded on July the 1st. For the British public, the unflinching nature of the Western Front was finally laid bare. One woman in particular shared an experience in which thousands of mothers, sisters, and wives would soon come to face. Vera Britton had just returned from a performance of Brahms's Requiem in Southwark Cathedral in central London. As she stepped out into the evening air, newspaper boys were running up and down the street, shouting that the great offensive had begun. Vera Britton, a nurse with the Volunteer Aid Detachment, braced for further tragedy. At just 23 years of age, she had already lost her fiancé, Roland Layton, who had been killed at the murderous Ypres salient in December 1915. Vera's brother Edward, alongside her close friends, Geoffrey Thurlow and Victor Richardson, were currently serving in Picardy. Just days before, she had learned from Edward that he was due to play a prominent part in the attack. This was because the two siblings often wrote to each other in code, using gardening euphemisms to get past the censor. For example, the celery is ripe was the chosen phrase to indicate the imminence of a major attack. Like countless others, Vera braced herself for the first rush of wounded. She personally added another 30 beds to the wards, which she described in her post-war memoir, The Testament of Youth, as sinister in their white, expected emptiness. On Monday, July the 3rd, the first rush of wounded arrived in London, swamping wards across the city. The white, empty beds were soon full of men with wounds of all variety. Missing limbs, severe burns, gunshot wounds, you name it. Vera relied on her mechanical habit of work to get her through the chaos, all the while checking the listing for news on her brother Edward. Vera's experience was shared by other medical staff over the following week. Edith Appleton, a 39-year-old nurse at an Allied camp in northern France, recorded her first contact with the Somme wounded on July the 4th, 
writing, quote, Wounded, hundreds upon hundreds, on stretchers, being carried, walking, all covered from head to toe in well-caked mud. The rush and buzz of ambulances and motor buses is the only thing I can remember from yesterday outside my wards. Inside, we had horrible bad wounds in numbers, some crawling with maggots, some stinking with gangrene. End quote. Fortunately, Vera Britton would be one of the few to be spared further heartache. She had snuck off to the mailroom in the morning of July the 6th, something she had done almost daily since her fiancé first deployed. As she sifted through the piles of incoming mail, she found what she was looking for. She spotted a crushed, pencil-scrawled envelope addressed in her brother's writing. The letter, written uneven and in clear distress, informed her that Edward had been wounded and was currently receiving attention in a field hospital south of Albert. Edward Britton had narrowly survived the bloodiest day in the British Army's history, but other families were not so lucky. Across England, families woke to the news that the attack had gone down, and the areas most affected were those with friends and relations to the Pals battalions. The residents of Manchester, Sheffield, and Worcestershire waited with bated breath. When they arrived, casualty lists were posted on grocery stores and post office windows, attracting throngs of people anxious to hear any news about their loved ones. To respect the privacy of the affected families, the names were not read aloud, but this did not stop some dramatic scenes from playing out. One witness described a woman rolling on the pavement, pulling on her hair and screaming her head off. She had just learned that her husband had been killed, leaving her with six children. Similar scenes soon repeated across England, France, and Germany. As the news of what transpired on July the 1st spread throughout England, it was difficult to comprehend. More soldiers were killed on July the 1st than had been during the first four months of the war, and some families were hit with multiple deaths. For example, a widow named Lydia Irie lost both her sons and both her nephews, all officers of the ill-fated Newfoundlanders Regiment. Mary Donaldson, who resided in the Ulster communities northeast of Belfast, had three sons, aged between 21 and 26. All three had been killed within yards of each other at Teepval. Generally speaking, families were informed in one of two ways. Those who had officers in the army received the news via telegram, often within days of the event, if the body or personal artifacts were recoverable, of course. But for those like the Donaldsons and Irees, the moment of truth was much more impersonal. In most cases, the dreadful news came in the form of a postman, who carried a plain, tan-colored envelope with the letters OHMS on His Majesty's Service printed on the outside. The envelope contained one of three letters. The most dreaded was Army Form B-10482B, which began with the ominous words, It is my painful duty to inform you that a report has been received from the War Office notifying the death of the soldier's name. The letter then went on with a refined statement expressing the sympathy of the royal family and the regret of the army council. More fortunate families, like the Britons in this case, received a different letter. Vera's mother received form B-10480, covering non-fatal wounds, 
while B-10483 notified that a soldier was missing in action. Families feared B-10483 the most. Death at least provided some sort of conclusion, but to hear that a loved one was missing in action meant more dreadful waiting. For some families, confirmation would not come until after the war, while others would hear nothing at all. The first day of the Somme had bloodied the English home front just as it had Kitchener's battalions. But in the face of such horrible carnage, few equated July the 1st as a defeat, and there was a collective agreement that the war had to continue. The shock of the early losses on the Somme was difficult for the public to absorb, yet individual suffering was mediated through a narrative of purpose and worthy sacrifice. In August 1916, Filmmaker Jeffrey Malins released his anticipated film, entitled The Battle of the Song. It will be remembered that Malins had been on the front lines on July the 1st, where he filmed the explosion of Hawthorne Mine. It is Malins' photography which supplies us with most of the images from that fateful day. Malins had not made The Battle of the Song for political purposes, yet it does not shy away in its honest portrayal of battle. The film begins showing the optimistic innocence of the Powell's battalions. Men from the Suffolks and Bedfords are seen marching en route to the front, smiling and waving at the camera, waiting the big adventure they had sought. But once the battle begins, the film takes on a different tone, showing the carnage and its aftermath in graphic detail. Images of British and German corpses dominate the latter half, including one image of a deceased Manchester, whose pet retriever lay gunned down beside him. For 1916, the graphic tone of the film stunned British society. Although the threat of Zeppelin raids and coastal bombardments remained, the European battlefields were brought into the neighborhoods across England. The Battle of the Somme, both the film and actual battle, unmasked the Western Front in England. Yet few felt that enough was enough. The visceral content of the film, alongside the seemingly endless casualty lists, did not turn the British public against the war. In fact, they had the opposite effect. To this extent, the Somme became the first media battle in a mass media war. One reviewer of the film wrote that it was England's task to beat the German sword into the plowshare, so that nations may learn war no more. The media baron Lord Northcliffe was successful in threading the tragedies such as the Ulsters and Newfoundlanders into a communal experience, one of sacrifice and determination. In these great days, Northcliffe wrote, the breath of war is the breath of life, and the spirit of sacrifice is the spirit of regeneration. Newfoundland's response to Bowman Hamel was also patriotic and self-affirming. On July the 7th, the Evening Telegram ran the following editorial front page, and I quote, The action of July the 1st was no defeat. It was the first and greatest step towards the final victory that will crush German power and humble German arrogance. In it, our men played no small part. Of that we may be sure. We know they did not give their lives for nothing. When their achievement, in all its glorious detail, is told, there will be a thrill of pride throughout our island, such as it has never felt before. Quote. Like most senior officers, 
Joff and Haig were suspicious of the enterprising journalist, but they appreciated the media's role in maintaining morale. As we've discussed, Haig was notoriously inarticulate, and he was happy to turn press matters over to his subordinates. This arm's-length approach allowed Haig to play the press with a degree of deniability. Before his counterpart, Joseph Joff, there was no such buffer. At home, Joff continued to wage his political battle. On July the 4th, the Senate held a secret session in Paris to debate Joff's conduct of the war, now that his much-hyped Somme offensive was underway. This meeting, coming just 11 days after Maginot's explosive tirade against Joff's management of Verdun, held the future of France's war in question. French politics had always been confrontational. It was one of the many reasons why the Third Republic was a revolving door of governments in the years leading to the Great War. Here, its mercurial nature was on full display. In June, it looked as though the Briand government, and by extension Joff, would be ousted. Much of this debate had taken place in the papers, led by the firebrand George Clemenceau, who with his pen unleashed a relentless attack on Joff's leadership. Public anxiety over the Meuse and uncertain success of the Somme had brought the French people's fears to the surface. Like the British and German armies, the French army would release daily updates, summarizing the main military events from abroad and at home. Although Joff's staff worked tirelessly to provide a positive spin on things, it was clear that the situation was not going great. Salonika was of no particular interest, so most of the news focused on Verdun, which could only provide a glimmer of hope. The French could boast of defensive victories all they wanted, but until news of a successful offensive came about, public support was far from guaranteed. Joffre had banked on the Somme to be his deliverer, and for the first time since the miracle at the Marne, the French CNC could chalk another victory to his belt. Fayol's success along the southern bank was like a weight lifted from his shoulders. Joff knew the value of good news, and when the scale of Fayol's achievement was realized, Joff ordered that the news be made public at once. But he was careful not to waste it all in one shot. Joff shared no illusions of what lay ahead, and he understood that if public opinion was to remain positive, a steady diet of good news was crucial. However, the French journalist had an easier job than their British counterpart. France was engaged in a war of liberation, so whether it was at Verdun or the Somme, the song remained the same. But now, French morale was given new life. They now had proof the army could beat the Germans in a set battle, reversing a trend not seen since September 1914. Anglo-French leaders would have been further satisfied had they known what was unfolding in Germany. There, the military-political situation had shifted also. As a recall from past episodes, Falkenhayn planned to end the war through a three-stage stratagem. The first stage was to attack the Entente, which he did at Verdun. The second was to absorb the expected Anglo-French counterattack, which was the Somme. The third stage was a massive counterattack aimed at sweeping away a demoralized enemy. So far, Falkenhayn's plan remained more or less on track. As discussed in past episodes, Falkenhayn was not a believer in the decisive victory. 
The war had demonstrated that knocking out armies in the field did not lead to peace settlements. By the time of the Somme, the Central Powers had occupied four enemy capitals, Belgrade, Warsaw, Brussels, and Cetinia in Montenegro. The Allies, by comparison, held none. But for a man who played the long game, as Falkenhayn did, he was incredibly nearsighted when it came to assessing reality. Brusilov's offensive had shattered assumptions that Russia was done for. The attack paralyzed Conrad's armies, forcing the Germans to scramble aid to their Habsburg allies. German divisions from Verdun were soon dispatched to the east. Brusilov's offensive and the French attack on the Somme appeared to be the antithesis of everything Falkenhayn planned for. The two nations he judged the weakest had landed substantial blows, while the much-anticipated British attack had proved underwhelming. But Falkenhayn saw light at the end of the tunnel. The British had kept coming, capturing Conto Maison and Mamet's Wood on July the 12th. This put the British in a better spot to attack the next German line, dubbed the Braunstellung, or Brown Line. Faced with this new challenge, the German chief reversed course. On July 11th, three days before the Battle of Byzantine Ridge, he ordered the 5th Army at Verdun to assume strict defensive positions, thus postponing the offensive, which had raged for nearly six months. A final effort to capture Fort Souville, which saw renewed use of phosgene gas, proved the high watermark of the German offensive. Nevel's army poured such a roaring torrent of shells into the German lines that the earth seemed to boil. The last bolts on the door to Verdun had held, forcing the crown prince to dig in and establish a defensive position along the Fleury Ridge. The decision to forego further attacks on Verdun was soon followed by a restructuring of the German forces in Picardy, further evidence that the British attacks were keeping their adversary off balance. After the fall of Mehmet's Wood, Falkenhayn was convinced the British were not going to roll over, and he saw that the battle had grown too large for any one army to handle. So on July the 12th, the German army group was divided in two. Von Belov's 2nd Army was given providence over the northern front, opposite the British. On the southern bank, opposite the French, a new group was formed under Army Group South, commanded by Maximilian von Galwitz, whose experience at Verdun was expected to be invaluable. The decision to split the Somme army group caused a minor controversy in German leadership. To the disgust of many, Falkenhayn tapped Galwitz to command, passing over the much-favored von Belov, a man who would spend his entire war in Picardy. The decision to promote Galwitz over von Belov did not go unnoticed by Falkenhayn's enemies, notably Crown Prince Ruprecht, who recorded on July 17th, Quote, General von Belov is justifiably sickened by this slight. The guilt for the reverses which his army has suffered lies with the army high command, not him. They ignored his reports and took no account of his requests for reserves. When at long last reserves did arrive, it was too late. They arrived in dribs and drabs and had to be deployed immediately to plug gaps. As a result, there had been such a mixing of formations that nobody knows what's happening. End quote. 
However clumsy the British attacks were in that period, from July the 4th to 12th, the results show that Allied strategy was working. The crisis at Verdun had passed, meaning the Somme had completed one of its objectives. But all the combatants knew it would not end there. The question now was what would happen next. Another battle was needed to test their resolve, and that battle was to be the Battle of Byzantine Ridge. So it goes without saying that the assault on Byzantine Ridge was hypercharged by the political and social atmosphere at the time. Although much smaller than July the 1st, there would be little Haig or Joff could do if the attack failed. If optimism was to prevail, nothing short of victory was needed. Meanwhile, back at the front, Rawlinson's forces had completed their build-up. Late night on July 13th, Parties of Royal Engineers had crept into No Man's Land to mark out the jumping-off line with white tapes. By 2 a.m., 90 minutes prior to bombardment, units from the 13th and 15th Corps began to deploy on these lines. There were a few close calls. The movement of so many men created a lot of noise, coupled with general confusion and the clanking of arms and equipment. But miraculously, the deployment went off with the Germans none the wiser. No alarms had been raised, and the infantry could settle in for an uncomfortable wait. By 3 o'clock in the morning, all units were in position. All men were accounted for, and all were ready to spring the attack. The German front line was just a stone's throw away. The attack on Byzantine Ridge began on time. At 3.20 in the morning of July 14th, the whole sky behind the waiting infantry seemed to open with a roar of flame. For five minutes, British gunners unleashed a barrage of unparalleled intensity. The ground was alive with bursting shells, whilst machine guns fired on the German positions. The weight of shell was sufficient to smash the German fortifications, collapsing dugouts and filling in trenches with mountains of earth. German sentries on the parapet scrambled underground crawling over debris to reach their shelters. The artillery plan was sound, and the Germans were momentarily stunned. In contrast to July the 1st, it was like night and day. Although smaller by comparison, the shelling was much more effective. More shells fell within a concentrated area, and the result was devastating. German dugouts collapsed under the torrent, and large piles of earth filled in nearby trenches. Supplementing this forward bombardment was a secondary shelling on the German positions in the rear. Rawlinson hoped that by shelling both forward and reserve positions, he could cauterize the flow of enemy reinforcements. His plan seemed to work. Across no man's land, the Germans labored under the shelling. The bombardment had come on so fast and heavy that there had been no time to react. Byzantine Ridge was a charnel house. Smoke, dust earth and flame swallowed the German positions along the ridge. Many Germans who experienced this shelling were veterans of July the 1st, and knew they could count on their discipline and training to see them through, as one German soldier later described. Just before 4am, I realized that the enemy was lifting his fire rather more to the rear. The sentry fired a flare, and in the same second bawled, Get out, here come the British. Everyone took up position in the shell craters. 
Now let us pause for a moment and look at the battlefield from a wider perspective. We should begin with a small note on the nomenclature. Byzantine Ridge encompasses the area between Pozier and Longueval, on the south side of the old Roman highway. Atop the ridge are a collection of farmhouses and woods, which make up the village of Byzantine. Here is where it gets a bit confusing. Byzantine is actually made up of two smaller hamlets. You have Byzantine Le Petit to the east and Byzantine Le Grand to the west. These two hamlets are often grouped together as Byzantine, but since it's important to distinguish between Byzantine Le Petit and Byzantine Le Grand, I'll be referring to them by their proper names going forward. There is a map on the Great War Podcast.podbean.com, so don't worry if you're still a bit unsure. Rawlinson had organized his forces as follows. From left to right, you had four divisions involved in the attack. The 21st and 7th Divisions, part of 15th Corps, and the 3rd and 9th Divisions from Congreve's 13th. Now there was a 5th Division, the 18th which was present, but since it falls outside our scope for today, we'll be leaving them to the side. For the four main divisions, their objectives were fairly straightforward. 21st and 7th Divisions were to capture the German positions north of Bemetz Wood, and to the west of Byzantine Le Grand. This included Byzantine Le Petit and its neighboring wood. The 3rd and 9th Scottish divisions would complete the line, attacking Le Grand Village and Longueval. The overall goal here was to rupture the German line, allowing the cavalry to charge the gap and capture High Wood, thus unlocking... Wait, did I just say cavalry? Yes, yes I did say cavalry. And yes, this was part of Rawlinson's plan. We'll talk more about this later in the episode, but I wanted to give you a heads up instead of jumping you with it later. Rawlinson had placed two cavalry divisions, the 2nd Indian and 7th Dragoons, under the command of Walter Congreve. As you'll remember from episode 52, Into the Breach Part 6, Rawlinson failed to use his cavalry reserves when the German line had collapsed near Montauban. This decision robbed 4th Army of a major opportunity, and Rawlinson, no doubt, felt Haig's ire because of it. For the coming battle, the cavalry's role would be quite limited. Instead of charging down the hills and smashing the German flank, the cavalry were to be deployed as a mobile exploitation force. Their objective on paper was to charge through the available gaps and reach the German artillery positions in the rear. In addition, they were to secure the key position of High Wood, thus holding the door for the infantry who would then fight their way through. So far from standard cliché, the cavalry component was quite small, but how it would manage in a modern campaign like the Somme remained to be seen. Getting back to the front, let us now see how the battle unfolded. One of the first units into the fray was the kilted Highlanders of the 10th Argyles. Company commander, Captain Neil Weir, was in the midst of last-minute checkups prior to the assault. It was barely 3 a.m. A thin fog had settled on the ridge, but there was enough light to make out the German positions. Weir's platoon was due to attack at 3.45 a.m. As part of the 9th Scottish Division, the Argyle's morning objective was to capture a line of crossroads near Longueval, 
But first, they had to make their way into no man's land and prepare to jump the Germans as soon as the shelling lifted. Captain Weir later wrote of the experience. It was a dreadful and damp wait, but as dawn came, so our guns started until they reached a tremendous intensity, and at a real outburst from the 18-pounders just behind us, we knew that it was time for us to go forward. The Highlanders began their advance at 3.25 a.m. Rising from their cramped positions, the Highlanders moved at a walk, but once the adrenaline kicked in, they broke into an all-out sprint. On the German side, the roar of gunfire was replaced by the low rumble of heavy boots. Whistles and alarms rang out. Scrambling from their dugouts, the Germans filtered into their trenches, grabbing weapons and trading their sights on the lines of advancing infantry. But before they could get a read on the situation, the British were upon them. Grenades were tossed over the parapet, and battle had been joined. The first men to jump the wire were shot dead by rifle fire, but the speed of advance overwhelmed the forward defenses. Within moments, British platoons were among the German trenches, using bomb and bayonet to clear out the defenders. Weir's Highlanders were one of the first units into the breach. They had to cross about 300 meters of no man's land, which gave the Germans more room to prepare. Before the Highlanders reached Longueval, machine guns crackled to life. We could see little for the smoke caused by the explosion of our shells and mortars. The noise, too, was terrific, and yet I could distinctly hear the tap-tap of the German machine guns away to our right. Across the battle line, British battalions had fought their way into the German network. Between bazantine le grand and bazantine le grand wood the Germans were caught totally unprepared. Hundreds of dazed defenders were pulled from their dugouts including a colonel from the Lair Regiment, having survived the fight over Mehmet's Wood. For the first time in the war, grey-clad corpses outnumbered khaki ones, and the Germans were in complete disarray. Bavarian Infantry Regiment 16 was nearly wiped out, the bulk of its men wounded or taken prisoner. At bazantine le grand a fierce grenade duel between the Bavarians and members of the 8th Black Watch was taking place. In his book, The German Army on the Somme, Jack Shelton recounts the story of Reserve Oberlieutenant Gerhardinger from the 7th Company Bavarian Infantry. Gerhardinger's account provides an excellent description of the battle from the German side, and is worth reading in full. Quote, it was shortly after 3 a.m. when I was awakened by sudden drumfire. As the company commander, I scanned the area to our front. There was nothing to be seen but smoke and foundations of earth. The enemy was bringing down fire of all calibers and shrapnel on the trenches and obstacles. I shouted at the gunner of a heavy machine gun that he should bring down fire on the British soldiers who were headed for Longueval, but he did not respond. So I dashed from the trench to the gun. I threw myself down by the gunner and saw that he was dead, shot through the temples. Hardly had I prized his cramped grip off the handles of the gun, pushed him to one side, and tried to fire at the British platoons in the hollow road, then the weapon jammed. It had been hit in the breach by a rifle bullet. The chaos of battle soon overtook Gehardinger. He estimates all of this occurred within minutes. His account then continues. 
The British were firing at us from the windows and holes in the roofs of Longueval. Then things got very serious. I was standing behind a parapet when simultaneously British grenades landed on the parapet and the edge of the trench and fell down into the trench next to me. I only escaped from this hopeless position by instinctively grabbing the grenades which had fallen in the trench and hurling them out. They were still in the air when they exploded. End quote. By 10 a.m., the British held large sections of Byzantine Ridge. Byzantine Le Petit and Longueval had been occupied, while the 21st was engaged in a tense firefight over Byzantine Le Petit Wood. At the center of the advance, the security of Byzantine Le Grand remained in limbo. So let us now narrow our focus to this one area. The 3rd Division, consisting of the 12th West Yorks, 13th Kings, and 8th Devonshires, had attacked opposite Byzantine Le Grand. The type of fighting in this area best illustrates the conditions on the battlefield, and how, although the British were largely successful, there was no guarantee the battle had been won. The weight of the British shelling had rendered the ground at Byzantine Le Grand unrecognizable. The village was left a smoldering heap of brick and twisted lumber. The Yorks, Kings, and Devonshires began their assault at 3.25 a.m. The 13th Kings were slammed by machine gun fire which tore bloody holes in their ranks. Fortunately, the German wire had been well cut, and although snipers on the rooftops harassed the attackers each step of the way, the collective were able to press through the gaps and occupy the second trench. The Germans in the forward line had put up little resistance at close quarters. So quick was the advance, most of the Germans were hauled out of their shelters at Bayonet Point. But beyond that, the going got difficult. The artillery had done its job a little too well. Roads, trenches, and landmarks had been obliterated, making the maps provided to the infantry totally useless. The second line of trenches directly behind Byzantine Le Grand was unrecognizable, forcing the battalions to pause and double-check their bearings. At the same time, they found themselves taking heavy fire from a German position known as the Keep, which was a collection of farmhouses formed in a square, buttressed against a crossroad northwest of the village. By the time the British were outside, the Keep was little more than a wreckage, but the reinforced cellars gave the Germans ample protection, who were able to fire on the British from these concealed positions. Rooftop snipers, hidden machine guns and mortars, wrecked havoc on the West Yorks, who arrived there just after 3.45 that morning. The West Yorks soon discovered they were isolated. Due to the confusing nature of the battlefield, the Kings and Devonshires had lost contact. Both units had taken considerable casualties so far forcing their COs to request immediate reinforcements. Between the Devonshires and Kings, five company commanders had been killed, threatening the impetus of attack. At 4.39am, calls for reinforcements were sent through, and were picked up by the 1st Northumberland Fusiliers, who left their reserve positions some 400 metres south of Byzantine Le Grand. The Fusiliers proved a welcome addition. With fresh legs, plus a new supply of mortars and bombs, the Germans in the keep were soon blasted from the cellars. But resistance still held. Fierce house-to-house -house fighting ensued. The fusiliers were forced to go in with bayonet, and owing to the perilous condition of the village, a thorough search 
especially of the cellars, proved equally deadly. Death and injury from rifle fire was sudden and frequent. It would take another two hours of heavy fighting before Byzantine Le Grand was finally cleared. By 9.30 a.m., the arrival of the second Warwicks, who had advanced west from Byzantine Le Grand Wood, provided additional assistance. The last pockets of German resistance attempted to flee, but were soon cut down in open fields. But the most dramatic action of the day would take place later that afternoon. By 7.30 a.m., most of the British units had secured their objectives along the 6-kilometer front. Fighting continued to rage in certain hotspots like Longueval and Byzantine Le Grand, but by and large the attack was playing out in British favor. High Wood appeared ripe for the taking. The time had come for the cavalry to make its appearance. The role of cavalry in the Great War is steeped in myth and misinterpretation. Perhaps the oft-quoted first-hand account of Lieutenant Fred Beadle of the Royal Artillery has something to do with this. Beadle's testimony encapsulates perfectly all the cliché things we've been led to believe about the First World War, that it was a conflict waged by antediluvian generals who were not interested in conforming to the modern battlefield. Beadle hits all the right notes, describing cavalrymen galloping with lances and pennants flying, only to be torn to pieces by machine guns. Quote, All over the place, horses and men dropping on the ground, with no hope against the machine gun. It was an absolute rout. End quote. Although Beadle describes a harrowing picture, the word of a single witness should not trump historical scrutiny. In fact, there was an ongoing debate over whether Beadle was even present to witness the charge. As we discussed in episode 48, cavalry had been undergoing several changes in the years prior to 1914. Cavalrymen like Haig, Rawlinson, and John French were realistic about its future in the fast-changing battlefield. With long-range howitzers and machine guns, the value of the mounted horsemen was fraught with questions. The general census was that cavalry was not obsolete, but it had to evolve if it were to remain a valued branch of service. One answer to this problem was the development of hybrid cavalry, the type of horsemen Haig had promoted since the 1890s. As a brief refresher, hybrid cavalry was a combination of the traditional horsemen and dismounted infantry. Cavalrymen were now like specialized infantry, requiring a new range of skills such as marksmanship, weapons maintenance, fortification construction, and believe it or not, map reading, especially when working with other infantry units. Since the industrial battlefield dwarfed those of previous generations, skills normally reserved for officers had to be proliferated through the ranks. The idea of a cavalryman digging a trench was unheard of before Hag's time. The cavalry component for the Battle of Byzantine Ridge was born from Rawlinson's view that a powerful cavalry stroke could disrupt German movement behind the lines. When planning for the operation, Horn and Congreve were ordered not to use their reserves in the event of a breach. Rawlinson had left explicit instruction that the cavalry would be given this opportunity. Now, as mentioned earlier in the episode, the cavalry formations on deck were the 2nd Indian and 7th Dragoons. These 2,000-man strong formations were stationed near Marlincourt, a small village roughly 6 kilometers south of Albert. At 7.40 a.m., 
they were ordered to make their way forward. Conditions on the ground, however, were terrible. Roads were muddy, and riding over shell-scarred ground was dangerous for both man and horse. The cavalry's commanding officer had slipped off his mount twice, while several horses suffered fractured limbs en route. So bad was the journey that they did not arrive at the front until just after noon hour. From there, events took a confusing turn. At 3.30 p.m., 15th Corps Commander Henry Horn received an erroneous message, stating that Longueval was firmly in British hands. This was only partly true. The village remained hotly contested, as both sides were determined to hold on. Horn could only act with what information was presented to him, and knowing the clock was ticking, he was forced to respond. Assuming Longueval was in their possession, the time to unleash the cavalry on High Wood had arrived. Now here is where things get a little confusing. If you look at the map, you'll notice something odd. Longueval and Highwood are on opposite ends of the battlefield. Highwood was in Horn's sector, while Longueval was in Congreve's. How Horn received this piece of news before Congreve is still a matter of debate, and it appears that we are no closer at a definitive answer. The most likely explanation is human error. The message may have easily been scrambled on its way through the wire, and the wrong man picked it up. In any event, this was not the real issue. The problem was that since Rawlinson gave the cavalry to Congreve, Horn did not have the authority to order it against High Wood. So the man who needed it most had no way of using it. On July the 1st, Rawlinson had prevented Congreve from using cavalry and now Congreve was dangerously close to repeating the same mistake. Fortunately, this error was caught before it ballooned. Without checking the validity of Horn's request, Congreve began the process of transferring the command of the cavalry over to Horn. This asinine process took time, and it does not show the cumbersome British command system in a good light. The delay prevented the cavalry from attacking when it could have done the most damage. The charge itself did not begin until 6.45 that evening, 11 hours after it was ordered to the front. In any event, the sight of the lines of mounted horsemen did wonders for British morale, and their appearance on the battlefield was a sign that things were going their way. One witness, the chaplain Pat Leonard of 3rd Division, recalled the scene. Quote, During the evening, we stopped our work to watch the most inspiring spectacle of the war. Down over the ridge behind us came the cavalry in long lines. First came fierce-looking Indians, their turbans streaming behind them as they cantered past, some with lances with points agleam, others armed with carbines and machine guns. Behind came our English cavalry, and behind them, against more Indians until we thought they would never end. Leonard then continued, Across the valley, they cantered and up the other side, until just behind the crest. They halted and formed into their troops and squadrons. Soon after the last of them had passed the crest, we heard the German machine guns tapping out their stream of death. Quote. Although Leonard's account mirrors Lieutenant Beadle's earlier testimony, the cavalry were not charging to their anachronistic end. As the horsemen thundered up the corn-covered slopes of high wood, they came under fire from German outposts concealed in the overgrown crops. 
Men and horses fell to the ground, but the charging steeds were quick to close the gap. Dropping lances, the cavalry crashed into the German positions, and panic soon spread. Despite modern weaponry, the charging horsemen remained a formidable target. Fifteen Germans were speared with lances, while thirty-two dropped their rifles and fled. The defenses in front of Highwood crumbled, and the cavalry continued their relentless pursuit. Wheeling northward, they dismounted their horses and proceeded to defend the tree line with machine guns and rifles. This here was Hag's hybrid vision on full display. Fighting in small units, the dismounted horsemen managed to hold the tree line for over an hour, and were soon joined by reinforcements from 7th Division. Unfortunately, the hold on Highwood proved only temporary. As always, the Germans reacted swiftly. On the reverse slope behind Longaval, the Germans had erected a complex system of trenches known to the British as the Switch Line. The Switch Line served as a brain for the second and third line defenses, and it ran the length of the ridge between High and Delville Woods. German command had gripped the situation and dispatched the newly arrived 7th Infantry Division to the area near Longaval and Delville Wood, where they immediately counterattacked against the British. The untimely arrival of a fresh German division saw the plan to secure Highwood collapse. It would have been suicidal to attempt to push through Highwood with the switch line occupied. So having fired off the bulk of their ammunition, the remaining cavalry withdrew to bazentin le grand having suffered just eight fatalities and fewer than 100 wounded. 38 horses, however, were killed in the battle. So far from accepted cliché, the cavalry component of Byzantine Ridge proved a limited success. It was a validation of Haig's hybrid model, and proved that cavalry was not a relic of sub-bygone era. Deployed as a mobile exploitation force, the mounted soldiers had held onto High Wood long enough for the infantry to relieve them. Although High Wood would not be secured on July 14th, this failure was not the cavalry's responsibility. Neither Hag nor Rawlinson expected them to deliver the decisive blow, but popular interpretation has, unfortunately, turned a blind eye to the real reason behind its deployment. By 10 a.m. in the evening of July 14th, the Battle of Byzantine Ridge had fired its last shots. As the gunfire faded, the British were in possession of the bulk of the ridge, including Byzantine Le Petit, Le Grand, and Longaval. However, Delville and High Woods remained in German hands. But this did not overshadow the fact that the attack was a success. Haig finally had something to crow to the French. He had promised a victory on Bastille Day, and for all intents and purposes, his army had delivered. He declared that July 14th was the best day we have had this war, and considering the marked improvement from July 1st, it would be hard to argue this point. Foch was equally impressed by the performance, admitting to Rawlinson that the BES performance exceeded all expectations. However, the French were not completely satisfied. As William Philpot writes, the victory at Byzantine was scant compensation for the amateurishness of the past two weeks, leaving the French wondering if this was the start of something new, or whether the British would fall back to their July 1st performances. 
While Haig and Rawlinson could be happy with the results, the character of war was never far from view. Byzantine Ridge had cost 4th Army another 9,000 casualties, and this was not the end of the German defenses. Highwood and Delville Wood remained on the German side of no man's land, and further defenses lay beyond. The rear slope of Byzantine Ridge presented a new host of obstacles, strengthened and wired over the past two weeks. A look at the map showed that 4th Army was dangerously close to marching into a salient of their own making, flanked by the villages of Pozier and Tiepval to the left, and Jinchi and Guelmont to the right. These elevated villages threatened to restrict not only the British, but also French axis of advance. They would need to be captured before the Germans had time to consolidate. For the British, their first task after July 14th was to finish what they started, and the capture of High and Delville Woods became priority number one and two. On July the 15th, the 1st South African Brigade would launch the first of a series of attacks against Delville Wood, beginning a battle which would rage for the next two months. Unfortunately, the success of Byzantine Ridge was lost on one British commander. With battles raging on the Somme front, it made sense to carry out minor actions elsewhere. Lieutenant General Richard Haking, commander of 11th Corps, part of 1st Army, had an idea. Haking dreamed of securing the Aubert's Ridge, near the spot where the BEF first attacked at Neuve-Chapelle back in 1915. Haking's plan was to launch two divisions against the town of Frommel's, some 80 kilometers north of the Somme battlefield. The controversial Battle of Frommel's from July 19th to the 24th marks the return of the Anzacs to our narrative, as the Anzacs would take to the Western Front for the very first time. These troops, well-seasoned and battle-hardened after their experience at Gallipoli, were a tantalizing addition to the Western theater. Fit, strong, and ready to take action, their presence could provide the tipping point for Allied fortune, and the Battle of Frommel's would be their trial by fire. Instead, the Australians were ordered into a massacre, and Frommel's would become Australia's deadliest 24 hours of the war, with over 5,500 casualties many more than fell on a single day at Gallipoli. Next week, the BEF success at Byzantine will be followed by two costly battles, Frommel's and Delville Wood. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach us through email at thegreatwarpodcast@outlook.com, or follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write us a five-star review iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 55 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.